Chapter 3, Part 2 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 3, Part 2, School Days. The two outstanding debaters of G.K.'s life were Lucian Oldershaw, who became his brother-in-law and will often appear in these pages, and Edmund Clearhue Bentley, his friend of friends. Closely united as was the whole group, Lucian Oldershaw once told me that they were frantically jealous of one another. We would have done anything to get the first place with Gilbert. But you know, I said, who had it? Yes, he replied. Our jealousy of Bentley was overwhelming. Mr. Bentley became a journalist and was, for long, on the editorial staff of the Daily Telegraph, but he is best known for his detective stories, especially Trent's last case, and as the inventor of a special form of rhyme, known from his second name as the Clarihue. He wrote the first of these while still at school, and the best were later published in a volume called Biography for Beginners, which G.K. illustrated. Everyone has his favorite. My own is... Sir Christopher Wren said, I am going to dine with some men. If anybody calls, say I am designing St. Paul's. Or possibly, the people of Spain think Cervantes equal to half a dozen Dantes, an opinion resented most bitterly by the people of Italy. Bentley was essentially a holiday as well as a term-time companion, and when they were not together, a large correspondence between the two boys gives some idea of how and where Gilbert spent his summer holidays. They are very much schoolboy letters and not worth quoting at full length, but it is interesting to compare both style and content with the later letters. All the letters begin, Dear Bentley. The first use of his Christian name only occurs after both had left school. Austria House, Pier Street, Ventnor, Isle of Wight. Undated, probably 1890. Although you dropped some hints about Paris when you were last in our humble abode, I presume that this letter, if addressed to your usual habitation, will reach you at some period. Ventnor, where, as you will perceive we are, is, I will not say, built upon hills, but emptied into the cracks and clefts of rocks, so that the geography of the town is curious and involved. My brother is intent upon the three midshipmen, or the three admirals, or the three coal scuttles, or some other distinguished trio by that interminable ass Kingston. I looked at it today and wondered how I ever could have enjoyed his eternal slave schooners and African stations. I would not give a page of Mansfield Park or a verse of In Memoriam for all the endless fighting of blacks and boarding of pirates through which the three hypocritical vagabonds ever went. I am getting old. How old it will shortly be necessary for me to state precisely, for, as you doubtless know, there is going to be a census. I have been trying to knock into shape a story, such as we spoke about the other day, about the first introduction of tea, and I should be glad of your assistance and suggestions. I think I shall lay the scene in Holland, where the merits of tea were first largely agitated and fill the scene with the traditional Dutch figures such as I sketch. 
I find in Disraeli's Curiosities of Literature, which I consulted before coming away, that a French writer wrote an elaborate treatise to prove that tea merchants were always immoral members of society. It would be rather curious to apply the theory to the present day. 11. Warwick Gardens, Kensington. Undated. I direct this letter to your ancient patrimonial estate, unknowing whether it will reach you, or where it will reach you if it does, whether you are shooting polar bears on the ice fields of Spitsbergen or cooking missionaries among the cannibals of the South Pacific. But wherever you are, I find some considerable relief in turning from the lofty correspondence of the secretary, with no disparagement of my much-esteemed friend Oldershaw, to another friend, Ifelo Makelimso, as Mr. Verdon Green said who can discourse on some other subjects besides the society, and who will not devote the whole of his correspondence to the questions of that excellent and valuable body. The society is a very good thing in its way. Being the president, I naturally think so. But like other good things, you may have too much of it, and I have had. As I said before, I don't know where you are disporting yourself beyond some hurried remark about Paris, which you dropped in our hurried interview in one of the brilliant flashes of silence between those imbecile screams and yells and stamping, which even the natural enthusiasm at the prospect of being broken up cannot excuse. 6. The Quadrant, North Borwick, Haddington, Scotland, 1891. You'll probably guess that as far as personal taste and instincts are concerned, I share all your antipathy to the noisy plebeian excursionist. A visit to Ramsgate during the season, and the vision of the crowded howling sands, has left in me feelings which all my radicalism cannot allay. At the same time, I think that the lower orders are seen unfavorably when enjoying themselves. In labor and trouble, they are more dignified and less noisy. Your suggestion as to a series of soliloquies is very flattering and has taken hold of me to the extent of writing a similar ballad on Simon de Montfort. The order in which they come is rather incongruous, particularly if I include the list I have in my mind for the future. Thus, Danton, William III, Simon de Montfort, Rousseau, David, and Russell. I rejoice to say that this is a sequestered spot into which hiddly high tea, etc., and all the ills in trains have not penetrated. In these last two letters, there are sentences of a kind not to be found anywhere else in Chesterton. The disparagement of Lucian Oldershaw's excessive enthusiasm for the junior debating club, the solemn reprobation of the imbecile screams and yells and stamping of the last day at school before the summer holidays, and the antipathy expressed for the rowdy enjoyments of the lower orders, these things are not in the least like either the Chesterton that was to be or the Chesterton that then was, but they are very much like Bentley. He was two years younger than Chesterton, but far older than his years, and he seemed indeed to the other boys, and perhaps to himself, like an elderly gentleman smiling a remote, amused smile at the enthusiasms of the young. I get the strongest feeling that, at this stage, Chesterton not only admired him, as he was to do all his life, but wanted to be like him, 
To say the kind of thing he thought Bentley would say, this phase did not last, as we shall see. It had gone by the time Chesterton was at the Slade School. 6. The Quadrant, North Berwick, Haddington, Scotland, undated, probably 1891. Dear Bentley, we have been here three days, and my brother loudly murmurs that we have not yet seen any of the sights. For my part, I abominate sights, and all people who want to look at them. A great deal more instruction, to say nothing of pleasure, is to be got out of the nearest haystack or hedgerow taken quietly, than trotting over two or three counties to see the view, or the sight, or the extraordinary cliff, or the unusual tower, or the unreasonable hill, or any other monstrosity deforming the face of nature. Anybody can make sights, but nobody has yet succeeded in making scenery. Excuse the unaccountable pencil drawing in the middle, which was drawn unconsciously on the back of the unfinished letter. 9. South Terrace, Littlehampton, Sussex, undated. I agree with you in your admiration for Paradise Lost, but consider it, on the whole, too light and childish a book for persons our age. It is all very well as small children to read pretty stories about Satan and Belial, when we have only just mastered our Oedipus and our Herbert Spencer. But when we grow older, we get to like Captain Marriott and Mr. Kingston. And when we are men, we know that Cinderella is much better than any of those babyish books. As regards one question which you asked, I may remark that the children of Israel, presumably the Solomons, have not gone unto Oreb, neither unto Sittim, but unto the land that is called Shropshire, they went, and abode therein. And they came upon a city, even unto the city that is called Shrewsbury, and there they builded themselves a home where they might abide. And their home was in the land that was called Castle Street, and their home was the 25th tabernacle in that land, and they abode with certain of their own kin until their season be over and gone. And lo, they spake unto me by letter, saying, Heard ye aught of him that is called Bentley? Is he in the house of his fathers, or has he come upon a strange land? Here endeth the second lesson. Hotel de Lille et d'Albion, 223 Rue Saint-Honoré, Paris. Undated, probably 1892. They showed us over the treasures of the cathedral, among which as was explained by the guide who spoke a little English, was a cross given by Louis the Fourteenth to Mace Lavalier. I thought that concession to the British system of titles was indeed touching. I also thought, when reflecting, what the present was, and where it was, and then to whom it was given, that this showed pretty well what the religion of the Bourbon regime was, and why it has become impossible since the Revolution. Grand Hotel du Chemin de Fer, Aramanche, Calvados, undated. Artists Universal. This remark is not so irrelevant and Horace Greeley-like as it may appear. I have just had a demonstration of its truth on the coach coming down here. Two very nice little French boys of cropped hair and restless movements were just in front of us, and my pather, having discovered that the book they had with them was a prize at a Paris school, some slight conversation arose. 
Not thinking my French altogether equal to a prolonged interview, I took out a scrap of paper and began, with a fine carelessness, to draw a picture of Napoleon I. Hat, chin, attitude, all complete. This, of course, was gazed at rapturously by these two young inheritors of France's glory, and it ended in my drawing them unlimited goblins to keep for the remainder of the interview. In May 1891, the chairman of the JDC attained the maturity of 17. The secretary then arose in a speech in which he extolled the merits of the chairman as a chairman and mentioned the benefit which the junior debating club received on the day of which this was the anniversary, the natal day of Mr. Chesterton, proposed that a vote wishing him many happy returns of the day and a long continuance in the chair of the club should be passed. This was carried with acclamations. The chairman replied after restoring order. Naturally, this question of order among a crowd of boys loomed large. At the beginning, a number of rules were passed, giving great powers to the chairman, which that gentleman, he says of himself, lenient by temperament and Republican by principles, certainly would never have put in force. It was seldom enough, he continues, that the boy of 15 found himself in the position of the chairman, an attitude of command and responsibility over a body of his friends and equals, and it was not to be expected that they would easily take to the state of things. Nor was the chairman himself, like the secretary, protected and armed by any personal aptitude for practical proceedings. But solely by the certain degree of respect entertained for his character and acquirements, this respect, sincere and even excessive, as it frequently was, contrasted somewhat humorously with the common inattention to questions of order, nor could anything be more noisy than the loyalty of Fordham and Langdon Davies, with the exception of their interruptions. It may then fairly be said that the troubles and discussions of the first months of the club's existence centered practically around the question of order, the first of the great difficulties of this most difficult enterprise. How boys could scarcely be got to behave quietly under the strictest schoolmasters could ever be brought to obey the rebuke of their equal and schoolfellow. How a heterogeneous pack of average schoolboys could organize themselves into a self-governing republic, these were problems of real and stupendous difficulty. The fines of a penny and of a tuppence, which were instituted at the first meeting, were found hopelessly incompetent to cope with the bursts of obvious hilarity. Fordham, in particular, whose constant breaches of order threatened to exhaust even the extensive treasury of that spoilt and opulent young gentleman, soon left calculation far behind. Nor can the story be better or more brightly told than by himself. Mr. F., he wrote, at one time, after considerable calculation, found that he was in debt to the extent of some ten or eleven shillings, but as he felt that by refusing to pay the sum he would be striking a blow for the liberty of the subject, he manfully held out against what he considered an unjust punishment for such diminutive frivolities as he had indulged in. At times, incidents of a disturbing and playful nature have roused the wrath of the chairman and the secretary to a pitch awful to behold. At one time, Mr. H., a member who soon resigned, spent a considerable part of a meeting under the table, till he found himself used as a public footstool and a doormat combined. At another, as Mr. Bentley was departing from the scene of chaos, a penny bun 
of the sticky order caressingly stung his honored cheek, sped upon its errand of mercy by the unerring aim of Mr. F. G.K. was in fact 16 when the J.D.C. began. Manuscript, History of the J.D.C. Mr. Fordham well remembers how G.K. one day took him aside at the older Shaw's house and told him that he really must be less exuberant. This historic occasion was always alluded to later as the day on which the chairman spoke seriously to Mr. F. After various resignations, order was restored, and a little later two of the chief recalcitrants asked to be received back into the club. I feel so lonely without it, one of them had remarked, and G.K. comments, This has always appeared to the present writer one of the most important speeches in the history of the club. The junior debating club had come through its moments of difficulty and was a fact and an establishment. Nor was the circulation of the debater long confined to members of the club and their own circle of friends and relatives. Some of the boys had no doubt a regular allowance, but probably a small one. Gilbert himself says in his diary that he had no income except errant sixpences and printer's bills had to be paid. Moreover, in the first number, the editor, Lucian Oldershaw, confessed frankly that one reason for the paper's existence was that the society may not degenerate into the position of a mutual admiration society by totally lacking the admiration of outsiders. The staff were able immediately to note, any apprehensions we may have felt on the morning of the publication of the debater were speedily dispelled, when by nightfall we had disposed of all our copies. Of a later issue, the energetic editor sold 65 copies in the course of the summer holidays. Masters, too, began to read it, and at last a copy was hid on the table of the high master, Mr. Walker. Cecil Chesterton describes the high master as a gigantic man with a booming voice. Some Paulines believed he had given Gilbert the first inspiration for the personality of Sunday in The Man Who Was Thursday. Another contemporary says that he was reputed to take no interest in anything except examination successes, and that the boys were amazed at the effect on him of reading the debater. Reading in the light of his future, one sees qualities in Gilbert's work not to be found in that of the other contributors. But it is worth noting that the JDC members were, in fact, a quite unusually able group. Almost every one of them took brilliant scholarships to Oxford or Cambridge. The high master had never boasted of so many scholarships from one set of boys, and in reading the debater, an enjoyment I wish others could share, one has to bear in mind the relative ages of the contributors. It is, I think, striking that all these boys should have recognized Gilbert's quality and accepted his leadership, for they were all a year or so younger than he was, and yet were in the same form. They knew that this was only because G.K. would not bother to do his schoolwork. Still, I think at that age, they showed insight by knowing it. Gilbert's work is to be found in every number of the debater, usually verse as well as prose. Both Fordham and Oldershaw remember most vividly the effect of reading a fanciful essay on dragons in the first number. The dragon, it began, is the most cosmopolitan of impossibilities, and the boys rolling the words on their tongues, murmured to one another, this is literature. Except for an occasional flash 
the one element not yet visible in these debater essays is humor. This is curious because some of his most brilliant fooling belongs to the same period. In a collection made after his death, The Colored Lands, is an illustrated jeu d'esprit of 1891, Half Hours in Hades, an elementary handbook on demonology, which is as musing a thing as he ever wrote. The drawings he made for it show specimens of the evolution of various types of devil into various types of humans. The devils themselves are carefully classified. The common or garden serpent, Tentator Hortensis, the red devil, Diabolus Mephistopheles, the blue devil, Carulus Lugubrius, etc. Mr. J. Milton's specimen is discussed in various methods of pursuing observations in supernatural history which possess an interest which will remain after health, youth, and even life have departed. There is nothing of this kind in the debater. Besides the historical soliloquies mentioned in the letter to Bentley, there are poems in which he is beginning to feel after his religious philosophy. One of these, in a very early number, shows considerable power for a boy not yet. 17. Adveniat Regnum Tuum Not that the widespread wings of wrong brood o'er a moaning earth, not from the clinging curse of gold the random lot of birth, not from the misery of the weak the madness of the strong, goes upward from our lips the cry, How long, O Lord, how long? Not only from the huts of toil, the dens of sin and shame, from lordly halls and peaceful homes, the cry goes up the same. Deep in the heart of every man, where his life be spent, there is a noble weariness, a holy discontent. Where the mortal eyes has come, in silence dark and lone, some glimmer of the far-off light the world has never known, some ghostly echoes from a dream of earth's triumphal song, then as the vision fades, we cry, How long, O Lord, how long? Long ages from the dawn of time, men's toiling march has wound. Towards the world they ever sought, the world they never found. Still far before their toiling path, the glimmering promise lay. Still hovered round the struggling race, a dream by night and day. Mid darkening care and clinging sin, they sought their unknown home. Yet ne'er the perfect glory came. Lord, will it ever come? The weeding of earth's gardens, broad from all its growths of wrong, when all man's soul shall be a prayer and all his life a song. I, though through many a starless night we guard the flaming oil, though we have watched a weary watch and toiled a weary toil. Though in the midnight wilderness we wander still forlorn, yet bear we in our hearts the proof that God shall send the dawn. Deep in the tablets of our hearts, he writes that yearning still, the longing that his hand hath wrought shall not his hand fulfill. Though death shall close upon us, all before that hour we see. The goal of ages yet is there, the good time yet to be. Therefore, tonight, from varied lips, in every house and home, goes up to God the common prayer, Father, thy kingdom come. The Debater, Volume 1, March-April, 1891. Gilbert's prose work in The Debater must have been 
a little less surprising to any master who had merely watched him slumbering at a desk. His historical romance, The White Cockade, is immature and unimportant. But essays on Spencer, Milton, Pope, Gray, Cowper, Burns, Wordsworth, humor and fiction, boys' literature, Sir Walter Scott, Browning, the English dramatists, showed a range and a quality of literary criticism alike surprising. Perhaps most surprising, however, is the fact that all this does not seem to have been made clear to either masters or parents the true nature of Gilbert's vocation. He suffered at this date from having too many talents, for he still went on drawing, and his drawings seemed to many the most remarkable thing about him, and were certainly the thing he most enjoyed doing. Even now his schoolwork had not brought him into the highest form, called not the sixth, as in most schools, but the eighth. The highest form he ever reached was 6B. But in the summer term of 1892, he entered a competition for a prize poem and won it. The subject chosen was St. Francis Xavier. I give the poem in Appendix A. It is not as notable as some other of his work at that time. What is interesting is that in it, this schoolboy expresses with some power a view he was later to explode yet more powerfully. He might have claimed for himself what he said of earlier writers. It is not true that they did not see our modern difficulties they saw through them. Never before had this contest been won by any but an eighth-form boy, and almost immediately afterwards Gilbert was amazed to find a short notice posted on the board. G.K. Chesterton to rank with the eighth. F.W. Walker, High Master. The High Master, at any rate, had traveled far from the atmosphere of the form reports when Mrs. Chesterton visited him in 1894 to ask his advice about her son's future. For he said, Six foot of genius. Cherish him, Mrs. Chesterton. Cherish him. End of chapter 3, part 2.